Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 13 of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical practice supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. And today we are talking concussion with the amazing Dr. Bruno Fulmer. Dr. Fulmer and I sat down for about an hour-long conversation that was deeply explorative of the world of concussion and how there are so many myths that get spread, particularly in the sports community, that need to be debunked. And we debunk them in this episode. I think it's a really important episode to listen to whether you're involved in any kind of sport that has a risk of concussion or if you are a human out there with a risk of concussion, which basically means you. We covered myths, we covered challenges to diagnosis, what a concussion is, what a concussion is not. We talk about why every hit matters and what that actually means. And we talk about the differences in women and men when it comes to experiencing concussion. So lots of juicy info in this interview upcoming. Before we get started, I made one small error that Dr. Fulmer graciously pointed out to me after we'd finished recording, which is that where he works. He works at Capilano University. It is in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, not Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Might have been some wishful thinking on my part there. Anyways, here you go. Hope you enjoy. I want to welcome this important guest to the Well-Nurtured Brain. This is Dr. Bruno Fulmer. He is an instructor at the School of Kinesiology at Capilano University in Victoria, BC, Canada. And he has a master's degree in biodynamics of human movement and a PhD in kinesiology from the University of Victoria, one of my favorite universities. And among his at least 27, (laughs) possibly more, published articles, there are many of them that are on the subject of concussion in sport, and particularly concussion in martial arts. One title that caught my attention is a opinion piece that he published in 2021 in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that is simply titled, It's a No-Brainer, Combat Sports Should Be Ground Zero for Research on Concussion. And that really gets my attention. I think we're all going to be interested to hear about your research there. Dr. Fulmer is an important researcher and voice in the world of sport and concussion and in the concussion community, and we invited him on today to share his wisdom and his expertise. So welcome, Dr. Fulmer, to the Well-Nurtured Brain. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Thank you for inviting me. Congratulations on uh, launching your podcast. I listened to the first episode. It was very informative, very well done, very well edited, and uh, I'm honored to be part of it. No, Thank you so much. So whenever we're getting rolling with a guest, one of the things that I think helps folks understand the whole subject is actually understanding you first a little bit. And so I wanted to ask you, what got you interested in, particularly in concussion and notably concussion in sports, where in this case, 
you're looking at sports where the intention is literally to hit each other in the head and knock each other out sometimes. What got you interested in that? Uh, yeah, that, that's accurate. I think what triggered my interest was just the combination of my passion, passion for combat sports, being a jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, for chicks from Earth for the last 20 plus years. Never tried MMA dolls. Uh, I wasn't that great. Uh, <laughs> but then eventually after I finished my, my master's, which was focused on strength parameters of Brazilian jiu-jitsu athletes, when I was doing my transition to my PhD and also my transition to Canada, because I am originally from Brazil, I was in touch. I was in contact with my supervisor, which was my supervisor, uh, Dr. Eagles there from the University of Victoria. And he, as a black belt in karate and as a neuroscientist, he had a lot of interest in concussion uh, as well. So I just decided to put together my passions for combat sports and also my scientific interest for brain damage, concussion, with the ultimate goal to perhaps raise awareness, right, in this topic, fill some gaps. And there were many gaps. There are still many gaps in this particular topic. So that's pretty much what happened six years ago when I decided mm -hmm. to move to Canada, particularly to Victoria, to complete my PhD in this particular field of research. So before we get into the findings of your research and some of the insights you have into concussion, some of our listeners won't be that familiar with what a concussion actually is from a clinical viewpoint, from you know what actually defines a concussion, and then also what changes happen to the brain when someone has a concussion. Can you give us a 101 on what would be the definition of concussion, how you know you have one, and what changes happen in the brain. Okay, yeah, that's the, the $1 million question, right? It is hard, even though it is a very complex injury, okay? We need to start from there. But it's not that complex to define a concussion. It might be hard to diagnose a concussion. It might be hard to treat a concussion, to recover from a concussion. But defining a concussion uh, shouldn't be that hard. And, and we should always aim for the, the safe side of the spectrum. So uh, a concussion is an injury, put in in simple terms. A concussion is an injury to the brain. So the brain gets damaged. And a concussion is a subset of traumatic brain injury. And by traumatic, I mean that there needs to have a trauma or a mechanical force applied to the brain. Most often, people associate concussion with a direct impact to the head, which is not completely true. It's more often what happens, a direct impact to the head, but it also can happen through forces transmitted to the head. So a body impact with forces transmitted to the head with that whiplash uh, move. And then the brain, basically the brain inside in school, it's not a fixed structure. The brain can move. The brain can twist. The brain can have some shearing stress going on every time we shake our heads or we have these violent movements inside the school. So after an impact, after forces transmitted to the brain, there is damage to the brain tissue. So this might be some structural damage to the neurons and to the neuroglia, which are supporting cells for the nervous system, the nervous tissue. So damage, structural damage to these cells 
followed by inflammation, for example, but also on top of this, some functional deficits. And there is this metabolic imbalance that happens as well. So this metabolic imbalance is basically the brain requiring more energy and spending more energy to recover from that injury, accompanied by a decrease of blood flow to the brain. So there is a mismatch here. The brain is needing more blood flow, more energy, more glucose, right? The fuel for the, the nervous system. But at the same time, we have this decreased blood flow into the brain. So this mismatch, this metabolic imbalance will be associated with the most prevalent symptoms, clinical symptoms that we can see in a patient suffering from a concussion. For example, headaches or sensitivity to light, sensitivity to sound, mood and sleep disorders, feeling in a fog or tiredness, so aggressiveness as well. So all of these symptoms, and you don't need to have it all. You don't need to have the whole package to be diagnosed with a concussion. You only need, sometimes it only takes one and there is no one size fits all. So it's always every concussion will be different. And that's what makes a concussion so tricky, so challenging to be diagnosed and of course to be treated. But in terms of definition, concussion is a traumatic brain injury, is a subset of traumatic brain injury, usually classified as a mild traumatic brain injury, which is problematic in its own terms. And we can discuss that later on, of course. But it's a mild traumatic brain injury where usually these symptoms, the clinical symptoms, will evolve in the next minutes, hours, or even days after the original event, the original event being mechanical forces applied to the head. Mm. And so a couple important things that you said in there, for instance, it doesn't have to be a direct hit to the head. It could be a consequence of you having, as you said, whiplash or having some other sudden force applied to the body that then transmits up into the brain and rattles the brain essentially within the absolutely. skull. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So that happens, for example, in the sports setting with body checking in hockey, with a tackle in American football, with body kicks in martial arts like MMA or boxing or Muay Thai. In uh, car related accidents, more often you don't have a direct impact to the head because of the seatbelt. But you have that motion of your head leaning forward and bend, and then backwards, that whiplash move, uh, which is super violent, and that can trigger a concussion as well. So one of the questions that patients often will come to me after having a concussion is wondering why they didn't get an MRI or what kind of imaging studies can they get done in order to be sure that they've had a concussion. Can you speak to that at all? Absolutely. So that's another ingredient to make a concussion diagnosis and, of course, the treatment and recovery are challenging because there is no gold standard exam or test to diagnose a concussion. Concussion will develop, as we spoke about, there will be some structural damage, but the most prevalent and preeminent and the ones that we can follow up are the functional deficits. And the functional deficits are the ones associated with headaches, mood disorders, and those subjective symptoms 
that the patient will develop. Imaging exams, such as MRI, for example, there is no gold standard. There is no exam that will say, hey, this is a characteristic of a concussion, this is not, because each concussion might be different as well. And sometimes concussions won't come with a clear structural deficit. Concussion is in the mild spectrum of traumatic brain injury, which might be also moderate or severe. In the moderate and severe, most often this traumatic brain injury will be accompanied by very clear structural deficits, but that's not the case for concussion. That's why it's not mandatory. Not that it's not important, because it is important to rule out perhaps more severe traumatic brain injury. And just to confirm that that is, or that fits, that injury fits into the mild category. And again, just special attention to the mild word, because it doesn't mean necessarily that it's not serious just because it's classified as mild, but it's just perhaps to rule out the more severe traumatic brain injuries. And the concussion diagnosis itself usually will rely on a multimodal, so several different assessments, not only through imaging. Mm -hmm. And would one of the other pieces, and we're going to get to misconceptions in a moment here, but one of the pieces that I encounter a lot with patients where I'm doing some myth busting is that if they weren't knocked out, if they didn't lose consciousness, they couldn't possibly have a concussion. And in your world, I'm assuming that that is pretty well established that you don't need to have lost consciousness. Is that correct? No, yeah. no that, that is correct. Yes, that's one of the, the biggest and probably the worst myths that someone can rely on or can believe on. Approximately only 10% of the diagnosed concussions happen with loss of consciousness. So basically 90% of all concussions, diagnosed concussions, will happen with no loss of consciousness. So no, definitely you don't need to lose consciousness to sustain a concussion. In other words, if you didn't uh, lose consciousness, that doesn't mean that you didn't have it. It certainly doesn't rule it out. It's, no, it's still well within the range of possibilities if you're yes. having all of these, these symptoms. Yes. So you work a lot in this area of combat sports, and you've been investigating some of the common misconceptions around concussion that you see in athletes, coaches, parents. Tell me what you're finding that are the most common misconceptions you know, we'll talk a bit about how these misconceptions harm people as well. But first of all, what are the misconceptions that you're seeing out there in the world of sport, especially combat sport? Mm -hmm. There are many. The loss of consciousness is it's one of the thoughts, right? Uh, I spoke to many athletes that reported no concussions, no history of concussions, just because they never lost consciousness, either in training or in competition. And then you realize that they are doing that association. They are making the association of concussion with loss of consciousness. The other one is probably the use of headgears and believing that using headgears will help to prevent concussions or will stop concussions from happening, which is even worse. And going back again to the definition of concussion that I simply put here, 
concussion happens when the brain shakes and twists inside the school. And mm -hmm. nothing that you can put in the external part of your brain, so around the, the head, nothing will avoid, nothing will prevent, will stop your brain from shaking, from moving, from twisting inside the school. It can decrease the impact to a certain degree. It can definitely be helpful with lacerations and fractures to the school. However, it will not do much to prevent concussions from happening. The other misconception that is very important to, to emphasize here, particularly with combat sports, is the fact that you don't get to train your brain to be more resistant to repetitive head injuries. So, and that's a misconception that I can see where it's coming from, because if I use my muscles a little bit more, they will get stronger. If I use my bones, if I hit repetitively a wall or my opponent, my knuckles will get stronger. My shin bones will get stronger. That's part of the bone tissue adaptation. However, the brain is not a bone. The brain is not a muscle. The brain will not adapt the same way as these other tissues. Every hit matters. So I don't get more protected and I don't get more resistant to repair to head impacts if I get repetitively hit in the head. That's a very important misconception that comes all the way, for example, from the 60s when Muhammad Ali was training and their sparring sessions, and sparring sessions basically a simulated fight during the training, he was getting hit in the head in purpose just to be more accustomed to, just to try to create, to build up this resiliency in the brain. And that's still happening. I follow the sports closely. I follow MMA and boxing closely. And I still hear athletes reporting how they basically, uh, the expression that they use is, they go to war during their training. So they go hard mm -hmm. in training so they will be more prepared for fight day. And that's a pretty and very dangerous misconception. So these will be probably some of the, the ones that come to my mind right now. There are many more, and these are the ones that I'm trying to, to approach those and, for example, my social media or my articles. Mm. Yeah, I find that very troubling to think that there's purposeful training, taking hits on the head and that idea that, oh, this is going to toughen me up or make me more capable of managing hits during a fight, but actually it's adding more to their, basically their volume of brain injury over time. And you mentioned Muhammad Ali and that, you know, as we both know, he developed Parkinson's likely as a response of his repetitive brain injuries. And you just think about the consequence for him was so dire. But the consequence for like football players, for lots of folks who are getting these repetitive hits can be pretty significant. Absolutely. Especially for those who start their careers at a young age. So that's why there is this, there is a very strong movement nowadays to remove tackling from American football style, for example, or body checking in hockey in youth until 14, I believe, or even a little bit older than that. So the more you can delay had impacts, the better. And that's proven because all these cases of CTE, which is a, another clinical condition that we can, we can definitely talk about and very severe clinical conditions such as CTE in 
young people, yeah, like players in their 20s, even or 30s, and suffering from that disease and having a terrible end to their lives. Yeah, it's significant, life-altering, life-ending illness. Absolutely, for the whole family, for a lot of people, not just the players. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to what you were saying about we maybe want to talk about this idea of it being called a mild traumatic brain injury. Because if you're saying like every hit matters, and if you're in football or you're in, I mean, even with soccer, with heading the ball, if you're, especially if you're in combat sports where you're purposely hitting your head and possibly mistakenly training yourself through or thinking you're training yourself through getting hit on the head over and over again, that risk for future impairments is alarming. As a clinician, that's alarming to me. It is. It is. And it gets even more dangerous when we recognize that not only concussions will be detrimental. So you don't need to even, nowadays we know, researchers know, and probably clinicians are aware as well, but maybe the general public still don't know that repetitive head impacts, just please note, I'm not saying repetitive concussions. I'm saying repetitive head impacts are detrimental. And these are the ones that we are classifying as sub-concussions. Sub-concussions, by definition, it's basically what is not. So it's not a concussion. It's under a concussion, which means there is no clinical symptom after that head impact. And perhaps the having the soccer ball will, will represent this quite well right now. So you are having that ball over and over during a soccer match, and you don't feel any symptom, not immediately after or not the day after. You don't feel bad. You don't feel any headaches or sensitivity. However, over time, over a professional career or a mature career as well, but over time, those repetitive head impacts as known as subconcussive head impacts, they are associated with the chronic traumatic encephalopathy, even more than diagnosed episodes of concussions. So concussions are the trending term. Concussions are the one that people are all over talking about, trying to diagnose, trying to define, trying to recover from. However, the danger lies even beneath the concussion. Mm. The danger lies on hitting your head, exposing your brain to any mechanical force. Because if accumulated and accumulated enough, this is detrimental to the nervous system as well. So every hit matters is literal. Like you mean every hit doesn't matter whether it's one that creates a concussion or not. And then you're also saying that if the impacts are happening early in your life, that I guess the impact of head impacts on a developing brain is even more concerning over the long-term life of that human being because I'm assuming that a child's brain experiences that a bit differently than an adult's brain. Absolutely. There is the physiological aspect to it, uh, which is absolutely true. And there is the behavioral aspect, the educational aspect. How can I expect a child to report symptoms if they are probably not aware of any symptoms? They don't know what is a symptom, what is not. They don't know if they are suffering from sensitivity. They probably just know that they are uncomfortable or that they are not feeling well and and how much their parents will know as well to 
to raise the red flag and say, hey, this might be a concussion. So it is absolutely true from the physiological perspective, cognitive perspective, but also the behavioral perspective as well. So we should be taking better care of children and adolescents when it comes to, to exposure to head impacts. So what do you see, aside from the misreliance on headgear and thinking that headgear will give you protection from a concussion, in terms of like, especially the coaches and parents, what kind of mistakes are they making that you would love to see them get better at when it comes to concussion and children's sports? Mm -hmm. What is important to, to highlight here is that you can only prevent the injury from happening if you prevent the impact from happening, right? The best way to prevent an injury, such as a concussion, like a brain injury from happening, is avoiding to get hit in the head. So that directly already negates the fact that, or the thought that if I'm wearing some sort of cushioning around my head, this will diminish or decrease my chances of getting a brain injury. No, we won't. Headgear might be even related to some detrimental and negative behaviors. For example, more aggressiveness. American football players, they run into each other and they probably do that head first because they're wearing a helmet. I don't think they would do that. You don't see that kind of impact, for example, in rugby, where most players don't wear a helmet. I'm not saying that not wearing a helmet is safer. I'm just saying how behavior changes. With combat sports in particular, I have spoken with many athletes that reported that they go harder in training every time they are wearing a headgear. Uh, on top of that, the headgear, depending on the model of the headgear, sometimes it might even hinder their ability for peripheral vision. It might even hinder their ability to see the opponent's punches and kicks coming, for example. So it might be even the headgear, the use or not of headgear might be even related to other aspects that we need to consider. I was wondering about that earlier when you said that if there was a tendency to have this false security, I've got my helmet on, so how can I get a concussion or how can I get hurt? But even if they're wearing a helmet and they get an impact, it counts. It goes towards that cumulative effect of head impacts, regardless of whether they got it on or not. Absolutely. Yeah. All yeah. that extra pad around the body and the helmet as well. That combines with being young, being healthy and uh, mm. muscular very often. That always and all contributes to that feeling of I'm invincible. Mm -hmm. I can't get injured. I can't get uh, hurt. And then they, they do get more aggressive and that's not good for the brain. Interesting, unintentional consequence. And as you're saying, like you're not saying don't wear a helmet because there are some benefits to wearing it, but it sounds like the solution is more don't have a false sense of security. Yes, yes. And probably the most effective uh, prevention strategy, which we classify as a primary prevention strategy, which is the ultimate goal is to avoid the injury from happening in the first place, is, is to limit contact. So mm -hmm. limiting contact, particularly in practice, they're not making more money. They're not winning a game. They're not doing all those decisive moments during training, during practice. I get 
being a physical strength and conditioning coach, soccer players of MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu players, I know that they need to train what they will compete, right? I know that they need to produce those gestures, the technical aspects. However, if you can save your brain, save it as much as you can, eventually it will happen, Add impacts will happen by accident or possibly in competition, but just save it to the competition, you know? So don't waste all your brain life, let's put it this way, in the training room. And then when someone gets a concussion and it's identified as a concussion, that's an area where I think there's been a lot of effort, at least, to try to get better at identifying a concussion and the idea of return to play and timing that properly. Do you see misconceptions or mistakes happening in that area that you can speak to? Yeah. So particularly with athletes, there's always the concern with trying to get back to action as soon as possible because they don't want to miss practice. They don't want to miss games, of course. A very problematic aspect of concussion management is how much we rely on subjective symptoms reporting from athletes. So there are some objective signs, visual signs that we can observe that will lead to a concussion. For example, the loss of consciousness, for example, lying motionless or seizures or even the vacant look. But these are all observable signs. The symptoms that those athletes will develop and that will be used to follow up and to know exactly where that athlete is in the return to play protocol, they're mostly subjective. We are relying on them to report to us or to the clinician, to the physical therapy, to the healthcare professionals. We are relying on their willing and good behavior to influence what those symptoms, such as, once again, headaches, and not just the number of symptoms, but the severity, the intensity of those symptoms, they matter as well. So that's one, that's a very problematic topic in the return to play. Every concussion is different. So every return to play, return to learn protocol will be different as well. It's very important to have a, an individual record of injury. So to know how that athlete previously recovered, what the symptoms were, what was the intensity of those symptoms. So you can compare. Baseline testing is very important as well to know how much progress that athlete is doing to go back to their baseline level. And by baseline, I mean basically not having a concussion, right? Functioning normally. So these are probably this subjective symptoms reporting is probably one of the most challenging aspects for a follow-up or for a recovery, uh, return to play protocol. Yeah, and I imagine that a lot of folks end up in their general practitioner's office having had a concussion, especially if they're having concussion from a motor vehicle accident or some other event that's not sports-related, or they're not in a semi-professional, professional sports team, and they don't have a, you know, a legion of medical professionals supporting them. I would imagine that getting good advice on when to return to work or when to return to school or when to return to play from a general practitioner who's 
they are doing heroic work right now in the workforce, in the healthcare system. And it would be pretty hard for them to, I think, convey all of the important information to your patients. And I'm imagining that that's an area where people, ordinary everyday people, probably make some errors in terms of knowing what to do. Is there any resources that you recommend or that you have seen that you have respect for out there for the ordinary person who's recovering from a concussion? Mm -hmm. The Concussion Foundation is a very good and reliable resource. They are everywhere online. I'm usually and often resharing, reposting some of their, their findings. There is one very important finding, a recent finding, that it's kind of denying some of the myths. And again, we are approaching one of the myths about concussion, which is the dark room. Back in the days, we used to believe, or clinicians even used to believe, that in order to recover from a concussion, you should be in a dark room, completely safe and away from any stimulus until you fully recover. And that's not true anymore. So that motto of rest is best is not true anymore. Okay, so there is a lot of development in research and hopefully with time clinicians will adopt these recommendations, which is to exercise. So rest and exercise. I'm not talking about going for a marathon or going for a sprint or going for a full-on contact <laughs> session Yeah, in the training room. I'm talking <laughs> about movement. Okay. Mm. I'm talking about aerobic light, aerobic activity, going for a walk, going for a bike ride, particularly in stationary bikes, stationary treadmills in a very safe and controlled environment. So exercise, just one step back, rest is too important. And by rest, I mean physical and cognitive rest for the initial 24 to 48 hours after the episode after the injury. After this time, it is important to start some aerobic exercise intervention, controlled with some variables such as heart rate, such as speed or RPM, depending on the device that you're using, that you can control intensity and keep a level, which we call a sub-threshold symptom level. Mm -hmm. Meaning that you can sustain that without a certain degree of symptoms or symptoms at all? Yes. yes. Without exacerbating any symptom. If you reach to a point, if you reach a level, an intensity where you start to get exacerbation or raising any symptom, creating new symptoms or raising the severity of any of your symptoms, that's the cutoff. That's the threshold. You should exercise below that threshold. And then by doing that, there will be a natural progression. Perhaps next day or next week, you will be able to exercise a little bit more intense. And then this will lead you, this will facilitate your recovery process. And I'm not telling you, I'm not recommending you to do that by your own. This will, yeah. uh, of course, be prescribed by your clinician or by your physical therapist. But it's all important. It all comes down to education, education from the patient, but education as well from the clinicians, from the, the healthcare professionals that will be able to prescribe this kind of intervention and treatment. And it, I mean, it sounds so important that 
you then get some early advice if you think you have a concussion because you're talking about you know after 24 48 hours of rest and cognitive rest to start that intervention of exercise which makes complete sense from the perspective of returning that blood flow back to the brain where there's been this loss of of blood flow the people that i would assume have the best insight into this are physiotherapists and kinesiologists and athletic therapists. So people out there that this is their job, they do a lot of work in in concussion. But it sounds like getting early advice and getting some help and maybe some insights into what your particular needs are makes sense for people early in their concussions. It is it is paramount to seek healthcare professional and healthcare advice as soon as possible after a potential concussive event. After any potential concussive event, it is paramount to as soon as possible seek a healthcare professional, a medical doctor, someone specialized or expert, ideally in concussion. So you can start that road to recovery as soon as possible. And there are many findings in the literature that supports that the patients that got attention, got medical attention early on, they recovered faster and they presented uh, smaller uh, symptoms. And smaller or less likely to have those longer post-concussion symptoms as well, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Now, there's another thing that really caught my eye, which was a, an article that uh, you had co-written in Psychology Today on concussion in women, women in combat sports. And I found, again, like there's a lot of things in concussion research and concussion world that I find alarming or that just really I find very remarkable and very important that we get this information out there. And this piece about how women and people who are assigned female at birth and how they experience concussions differently from men, whereas most of the research, which is not unusual to hear being said in medical research, most of the research has been done on men only. One of the things that stood out for me was, and I'm hoping that you can speak to is, is how there's distinct physiological differences in how a woman or someone who is assigned female at birth will respond to that hit on the head, that concussion. Yeah. So this blog post in particular, and uh, we made this connection with Wonder Woman, right? What's with Wonder Woman? It came from a data, the data that we got when we analyzed four years worth of data from MMA fights. And we were basically looking at the fights that ended by a knockout or technical knockout due to stress to the head. So basically where head injury was the determinant to finish fights. And we were able to analyze eight men's weight classes. And only two female weight classes, just because there was not a lot of data at that point. That was in 2017. And we saw that the risk of a fight ending by a KO or TKO, which stands for knockout or technical knockout, the risk of fights ending by a, let's put it, head injury in female fighters was 200% higher with a weight difference of nine kilograms. So there were two weight classes. We compared uh, 
smaller weight classes or the lighter athletes with the heavier athletes with only nine kilograms of difference between the upper limit of these two weight classes. And the risk was increased by 200%. To find a similar risk increase in the male weight classes, there was a 50 kilogram weight difference. So athletes competing in the 70 kilograms, so lightweights, compared to heavyweights, 120 kilograms. So a difference of 50 kilograms. There was a similar, still smaller, but similar risk of fights ending by a keyword. So it just showed us, it highlighted how more exacerbated the risk was in women. And that motivated us, of course, to research a little bit more on, okay, why is that happening? Unfortunately, I don't have all the answers. One particular paper, which is not our paper, but that we found was the head-neck segment. So the head-neck segment and the strength, though in simple terms, the neck strength, it's one of the best predictors and even a prevention strategy. So the stronger your neck is, more protected from compression because your body will be able to decrease to absorb some of those forces. And that is not that it's lacking, but it's smaller. It is significantly smaller in women. So women have a more, more acceleration in this head-neck segment due to a lesser strength in the neck. So this was one of the factors. The other factors that when we started to look in the literature was that women report more symptoms and usually report a longer duration and severity of symptoms following a confession. So it all started to come together that we decided to create a blog just to address, first of all, that underrepresentation of women in, in science and in sports, and also some misconception that sometimes happens in science that woman is only a smaller version of a man. So whatever happens in concussion in a man, just in a smaller scale, it will happen in women. No, that's absolutely the opposite. It will be more exacerbated. They will report more symptoms. They will suffer from those symptoms in a higher severity and for longer as well. They have less protection due to the next strength. They will have blood flow impairments that will persist a little bit longer. So go into those physiological aspects that you pointed out. So it seems that there is a gap in concussion knowledge. There's a lot of physiological knowledge and all that, but the gap is even bigger if we are talking about concussion in female athletes. And when you look at something like that change you mentioned in terms of reduced cerebral blood flow, in your article you say, I'm going to just take a quote from it, uh, the issue becomes even more dangerous in multiple episodes because female athletes with a history of concussions have reduced cerebral blood flow compared to women with only one concussion, a result that was not found in men. When you found that, or when you came across that, what do you think is contributing to that? This is very concerning. Obviously, as a woman, I'm quite concerned. I've had probably more than one concussion myself. And to think that 
I personally could be actually experiencing this change in cerebral blood flow because I have more than one concussion. What is contributing to that, if you have any ideas? That's a very good question. Just the, the physiological system is different, right? Women will go through some uh, hormonal cycles that the man doesn't go, doesn't go right? Naturally or constantly, for example. And they might be associated with fluctuations. And women might have, that's just a theory, right? Some more vulnerable states or more vulnerable moments throughout their lives. And this combined with an injury, such a brain injury, such a concussion, this can be a, a very problematic combination. There are some confounding factors as well that are important. And sometimes they get a little bit overlooked, right? So women might be suffering from concussion, from a concussion, but the recovery, the concussion management won't be appropriate because there are many confounding factors, particularly with women. For example, the menstrual cycle that can have, can present similar symptoms of concussion. For example, feeling with less energy, headaches, or feeling in a fog, or mood fluctuations. And those symptoms that are not concussion-related might be in the way of the, the proper concussion management. So recovery for a woman, it's a trickier, more challenging as well. And not recovering well from a concussion will definitely increase the chances of suffering from post-concussive syndrome, for example, or developing some lasting and persistent symptoms. And then, of course, if we are adding new concussions to this patient, and that's why that particular study saw how multiple episodes were worse than one single episode, which makes sense. Yeah. But that happened in particularly in women compared to men. And perhaps that's associated with a more challenging road for recovery in India. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe in the world of sport, this needs to be thought about in terms of how we approach the rules in women's sport versus men's sport. And I almost think that's controversial to say, because I think there's been so much push to have absolute equality in terms of things like the physicality of, of an event between a women's sport and a men's sport, but there might actually be some reasons that are clinically significant and important for those athletes going through time if they're in a sport that has a head injury risk to it. Absolutely. We're dealing with different bodies, different physiological systems to a certain degree. So these differences need to be addressed as well. And these differences need to be respected. So we can't just treat women as smaller version of man, for example, mm. for example, in mm. a recovery or a concussion management or in any sports setting, right? There will always be differences and these differences need to be addressed just to optimize the potential of both men and women in sports. When you think about women in recovery from concussion, and you said a few important things there, that they have more symptoms, that the symptoms tend to last longer, and they tend to be more severe. And that could be related to women maybe having a more severe tissue injury just because of that accelerative 
force from lack of neck strength and, you know, other things that we haven't talked about. Is there um, much research yet on advising or how clinicians could be advising females differently than males with recovery at this point? Not that I'm aware of, that's a very good point. How we should be perhaps advocating or addressing concussion, definition, recovery, all those aspects of concussion, slightly different. We've been doing this and lots of researchers been doing this to address particular audiences with particular strategies, right? That's what we usually call knowledge translation. We're just trying to speak to the audience that we are trying to communicate. And this is true for athletes. We need to use a different language when we're talking to children or to adolescents or athletes, for example, or veterans. But nothing that I've seen so far in regards to women or men in terms of how we communicate this injury and how we should address better all these components. That, that's a very interesting point. Hmm. I hope that there's some interest in that growing because I think one of the things we're seeing is there is this movement towards understanding women's experience in sport across the board and seeing that there's actually a lot of differences and that those differences are important. And things like you mentioned, the menstrual cycle as playing a role in in how someone might perform in a different part of their cycle for one instant. Or if you're, you know, a master's athlete, what does that mean when you are in perimenopause or menopause and trying to perform and train for some major endurance sport? It's going to change how you how you approach things. And most women are doing what the men do. Most women are training because most of the resources are based on what the men do. This piece, like the consequence of an injury, particularly an injury to the brain and an injury to a woman's brain, it be fascinating to see how we might start to dial in the, the therapeutics so that it's more specific to women. Women are, are definitely more complicated when it comes to healthcare in general because of the various stages of life they go through and all of the effects of the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks for how important it is to individualize any treatment, yeah. for concussions in particular, as you said, is a brain injury. There's no one size fits all, different features, different patterns. You need to consider the whole context of that person's life. So if you, and now I'm trying to to connect with your audience, the general audience that is perhaps going through a potential concussion, but if you're looking and if you're consulting with a clinician that it's not investigating other components of your life as well, and here I'm talking to clinicians as well in terms of you need to know as much as possible about that person's uh, context because all these factors will play a role in the management, particularly the recovery process from a concussion and how important it is the clinical recovery. And by clinical recovery, the goal is always to be symptom-free. However, there is one particularity about concussions which is the second impact syndrome. The basic definition here is if you suffer a new concussion when the first one is not completely healed. And the problem here is that the clinical recovery 
So being symptom free, it's not enough because the physiological recovery from a concussion usually takes longer. And we just spoke about how the physiological process in woman is usually longer than man. So we need to know that. Clinicians need to be aware of that. And before clearing a person or an athlete to go back to training and to full contact, only based on the symptom-free clinical diagnosis, there still need to be some buffering after that because the physiological recovery will take longer than the clinical recovery. So feeling better doesn't mean you're better yet. No, feeling better doesn't mean that you were completely safe. No, no. That's a very good point. And in simple terms, the clinical recovery is faster than the physiological recovery. Right, right. There's more healing happening even after you're relatively back to normal, which then, you know, from a back-to-play guideline or, or as a clinician thinking, well, how do I advise a patient about when they go back to school or when they go back to these things, I guess, when do you know that the physiological recovery is done if there's no symptoms anymore? See, I started this conversation <laughs> saying that it was a very complex injury. And now, yeah, we're starting to get, yeah, how? How is it possible if there is no gold standard, if there is no simple, one simple biomarker? that I can see in my blood, for example, hey, you're good. No, you're not good. Your levels are not there yet. So it is observational. You need to observe. You need to communicate. You need to have this open communication with the patient. And the patient needs to rely, needs to trust your approach as well in terms of you're good, you're not feeling any symptom, but we still need to be careful. We always still need to lean towards the cheerful side of the stages. Mm-hmm side of it. So going back to sports, going back to having those stimulus progressively, one day at a time, slowly increasing intensity, slowly reintroducing, for example, contact in your practice. And this slower progress will sometimes or hopefully will account for that physiological time, extra time Mm -hmm. that was needed. So you're saying like if you're advising it's okay to return to play, it's not return to play right away as usual. It's return to play in a graduated fashion or it's return to anything that could amount to another hit as a gradual return versus a... That's why it's so concerning when we hear professional coaches and professional athletes saying that they were bad because they were feeling I'm feeling yeah. good. I'm not feeling anything. I don't have any symptom anymore. Boom. I'm back to practice. And by the way, I'm, I'm back to full practice. So there's mm-hmm. still a need for that progressive return to play, still considering that the physiological recovery will take a little bit longer. And you need to account for that because that's what actually matters. You don't want to mm-hmm. expose your brain to a new injury when there is still a physiological vulnerable state going on. And the second impact syndrome, it sounds more dire. And I think I know a bit of what you're going to say of, around this, but the second impact syndrome, what's the consequences of that? If you get this second impact, what's the risks that you're trying to avoid by avoiding that second impact? So probably the worst risk is, is dying. You're going to literally die in most of the cases. 
that we we hear there is the Rowan's Law uh, here in Canada, and it was based on this story of a girl rugby player that got a concussion, didn't tell anyone, or I think she told one friend and the friend didn't speak up. So went back to practice, went back to training and competed again, got another hit and unfortunately died. The other risks are probably the mildest risk is to have post-concussion syndrome. So it is a very, very dangerous condition. You can get paralyzed. You can get completely disabled from a second impact syndrome. There are many, many examples on YouTube. If you want to dig in and, and research, you will see some some stories. It is a life-changing condition. So, and it comes down to education, to knowing what you're doing, to relying on your clinician, to reporting the symptoms, to waiting an extra day or so for the physiological. I'm not saying that the physiological will take only one or two days more, but mm. waiting a little bit longer, making sure that you're recovering properly because, yeah, you don't want to play with uh, the potential of sustaining a second what causes death? Like, what is the change in the brain with the second impact that's so different from the first impact where there is this risk of death? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is probably related to that vulnerable physiological state that the brain is in. So the inflammation that is still going on in the brain and sometimes brain swelling as well. So the brain doesn't react too well to a new injury. And the consequences of those will be exacerbated, will be way harder, way worse than the first one. So that vulnerable state, that again, it's no one size fits all. So there is no single, one single thing going on in the brain during the question. But a new episode will exacerbate those and you will have those very, very detrimental, even fatal uh, consequences. I am so, so pleased that you've come on the podcast because this information is so critical. And I think it's critical for obviously for people who are in sports, especially sports where they're going to get hit on the head, sports where they're purposely getting hit on the head. But even I think for the ordinary human out there who, you know, might get a head injury and not know that there's a portion of time here now before they recover where they need to be more careful because they too can get a second impact syndrome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The ignorance of not knowing, you don't know what you don't know. So that ignorance is very dangerous when you're playing with your brain. Mm. And I'm sure for you seeing it, when you see it out there in the world of mixed martial arts and folks teaching each other things. And you see, I saw one of your social media posts where a, I think a fairly famous player is providing some very problematic advice to a, another athlete. That must be really challenging for you to see that and, and not want to scream. <laughs> it is. It is challenging. I think in every way, walk of life, we try to learn from the, the older generation, right? We, we mm -hmm. hear to our, our parents our masters, our professors. But in combat sports, particularly in concussion knowledge in combat sports, there's a lot of misconception going on. And again, it gets even worse because they are getting hit in the head as a method of success. So they are doing that on a constant 
and often based. So any misconception in that particular environment gets even worse. It is worse. And uh, we published this paper because we investigated the concussion knowledge in combat sports athletes and uh, coaches, and we called it a vicious cycle of concussion knowledge or ignorance. You choose the term that you want to use. Because these misconceptions are just going on and on. Because athletes are relying on coaches to get information on concussion. Coaches, they've reported they, basically 90% of coaches, they don't frequently look for concussion knowledge. So they don't acquire new concussion knowledge and they are just relying on other coaches. Coaches are usually former athletes. Mm -hmm. And most of the athletes that we spoke to, they are already coaching the new generation of athletes. So once again, the same misconception I'm just passing on to the next generation. And that's probably what made us invest a lot of time and effort into educational pieces to communicate with both athletes and coaches, because we truly believe that education will be the only antidote to change this vicious cycle of ignorance to perhaps a virtuous cycle of knowledge in mm-hmm. sports. There's a generational need to maintain more healthy brains going forward in time. And one of the things that, and maybe to wrap up, when we think about brain health overall, one of the things that a touchstone that I always have in my mind in my clinical practice is that prevention is so much more important than anything else with brain health, that we want to prevent, whether it's an injury or we're trying to prevent problems like even iron deficiency in childhood and how that might affect brain health over time as they get older. In your mind, what would be the most important piece of advice that you would like to get out there that would be in the prevention world? I think you've probably already said that in this interview, but more like to give it a highlight and an underlining that this is really important from prevention. Education. Education is really important. Once you are aware of the risks, of the short-term impairments, the long-term impairments, perhaps you will expose yourself a little bit less. I'm not saying that that's an option for some athletes. If you're a hockey athlete, if you're a football athlete, rugby, mixed martial arts, that's sometimes not an option. And the head impact will happen. The head injury, the concussion might happen. But then again, education will come into play because knowing all the detrimental effects that you might sustain, that one single concussion might be a life-changing event. Knowing that, it will help you to be more accountable, to be more responsible in your recovery, to behave better, to make smarter decisions in your recovery Mm -hmm. process. And hopefully that will help you to go back safe and healthy to practice. So education is definitely the most important one. If you don't want to get injured, it's simple in a way. It's just not getting hit. If you're not getting hit, you're not going to get injured. However, sometimes injury happens. We don't choose to be injured, to be damaged, to go through a concussion. And then education comes into play to recover well, to seek medical advice, seek medical personnel. Hopefully, it's an expert, a specialized professional that can help you and guard you through a, a full recovery process. And then 
I believe this is, this is probably the most important piece of advice. Be curious as well. We'll seek educational pieces, reliable. Nowadays, there are so many, so much stuff out there. Look for a professional or someone that you trust, some reliable source that you trust. Most athletes, coaches, sometimes clinicians, they are not used to scientific literature, and I don't blame them. Okay, so they are not looking for reading scientific papers to get knowledge. And that's why it's so important to have science communicators like yourself with podcasts, like myself with my Instagram accounts, for example, and many, many others out there trying to digest that heavy scientific knowledge into smaller pieces and educational pieces for the general. Well, thank you so much for coming on today to be part of that solution. I'm really hoping that we get a really robust listenership on this one because concussion risk is, yes, it's higher if you're in a sport, definitely higher if you're in a combat sport. But I think just being alive and living, you know, you can get a concussion without expecting to get it. And just knowing some of these basic facts is critical to a good outcome and really preventing some of the more dangerous things that can happen. So Bruno... I'm so thrilled that you came on and I want to make sure that people are able to connect with you. You are on Instagram. I follow you on Instagram and I find your posts really interesting. So I encourage people to follow Bruno on Instagram. It's at Bruno Fulmer. That's F-O-L-L-M-E-R, correct? Correct. And he posts on just fascinating concepts and problems that you see in martial art. And Someone in my world, I don't spend a lot of time in the martial arts world. It's not something that I'm aware of. I don't watch, you know, mixed martial arts or anything like that. But to see that world and that culture, the way that you see it through your lens is fascinating and illuminating and educational. So I love your your Instagram feed, and I hope that we get a bunch more followers for you today. Thank you. I hope so. I, uh, I remain open, of course, for continuing this conversation and anybody who wants to get in touch with me. I'm usually delivering talks as well to, to gyms and helping to put together concussion management protocols, not just for combat sports, for, but sports and gyms in general. I'm open to it. So thank you very much once again for the invitation. And I'm, I'm really happy to have this opportunity to, to spread a little bit of education. Right. Thank you so much, Bruno. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. Bruno Fulmer again for joining us for that enlightening discussion. And as you can tell, there is so much that needs to be understood and discussed and thought about around concussions, especially in the sport world, and maybe how we think about things like training, things like head protection, how we educate players to avoid hits on the head and so forth. Just a wealth of information. I want to give you a brief review to help you integrate this impressive interview that we just completed. So one of the things we talked about was that a concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury that can occur with direct forces applied to the head or indirect forces transmitted to the head through the body. He gave many examples, but one example was in a motor vehicle accident You don't have to be hit on the head to have a concussion. It can come from the whiplash. 
and the brain moving around the skull in response to that. After a concussion, the brain injury itself means that the brain needs more energy. It's in an energy deficit because of the injury, but that blood flow drops to the brain, which means that it is very hard for the brain to get its needs met. And it's one of the reasons why we see some of the symptoms that we see in concussion. We also talked about how it's challenging to diagnose because there's no gold standard. There's no test that we can do that confirms that you've had a concussion. It's a clinical diagnosis and it's symptom-based. And an MRI cannot diagnose a concussion because an MRI is not able to detect the microscopic changes that are happening in the brain. It can only detect visible structural changes that would happen with moderate and major traumatic brain injury. Then we talked about myths and misconceptions. I think one of the most important ones was that 90% of all concussions do not have a loss of consciousness associated with them. As well, Dr. Fulmer emphasized that headgear and helmets do not prevent concussions. They can prevent lacerations. They can prevent fractures to the skull and those serious things. And so we still do want to wear them. But you get hit on the head with a helmet on, you can still get a concussion. And that we really cannot train the brain to be more resistant to hits. So in the world of combat sports, there's this myth that you need to train your brain to be able to tolerate your head being hit. And it actually doesn't work that way. It's not like a muscle. It doesn't get stronger every time that you challenge it in this way. It actually gets weaker. And what Dr. Fulmer was emphasizing that every hit matters, every hit. So that's even subconcussive hits. And in fact, the subconcussive hits are more strongly associated with the development of chronic traumatic encephalopathy later in life in professional and amateur athletes. So that means that we want to delay and we want to limit head hits in sports. And the consequences are really significant if you're starting your sports career, as most people do, when they're a child. A child doesn't necessarily know as well as an adult that they have a symptom that is actually important to report to the adults around them. So we want to be really careful with the little ones. And what he's saying, and I I endorse this 100%, is that we really delay the practicing of higher impact aspects of sport until a child has developed the neck muscles and neck strength, but also the cognitive capacity to understand what's going on for them. And then one place that we went into that I think is so interesting is how women experience concussion and actually get concussive injury in a bit of a different way than men, and that there's a problem in the research in concussion because it is almost entirely on men. Men are men and women are not small men. (laughs) Women are women and actually need to be researched separately. And when it comes to concussion in sport, women have a higher risk of injury in combat sports than men do. And this might be related to some of the structural differences in their neck, possibly other reasons. And when women have concussions, they tend to report more severe symptoms and more symptoms just in general. We also discussed the risk of second impact syndrome, which is really important for anybody to understand because a second impact can be a life-ending event for people with concussion. 
And so we talked about how important it is to prevent that, especially if this is a person who is in a livelihood or in a sport that makes them higher risk for that second impact. We want to make sure that they've fully healed. Being fully healed from a concussion is not something that we can actually define really clearly because once your symptoms are better, you are actually still not fully recovered. You need a bit more time. And Dr. Fulmer emphasized that we really need more research to help coaches and clinicians advise patients about when to go back to their regular lives, given that they can't just rely on feeling better as the final determination for return to sport, play, or school. I want to remind you that Dr. Bruno is available for questions, messages, and for collaboration in developing programs for athletes and coaches. You can reach out to him on his Instagram. Um, that is Bruno Fulmer, B-R-U-N-O-F-O-L-L-M-E-R. In his link tree, you can connect to his research and you can connect to Dr. Fulmer himself. He's inviting questions if you have any, and he certainly is looking for ways to increase his impact in educating people about concussion and sport. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here as always. I hope that was really beneficial for you. Please share this information and this episode with people that you think it would be important for them. So folks who've had concussions, folks who are in these types of sports, it's really important to get this information out there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. I look forward to seeing you again in a couple of weeks on the Well-Nurtured Brain. Until then, please be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.